0: Everybody, again here and also online. Well, thank you for joining us uh, and happy belated Valentine's Day. Uh, you are the beloved of God. Uh, we, we are all accepted and hit the beloved, and God loves you very much. And so, so do we. And so, uh, praise God for that. Well, a couple of announcements as we get started uh, this morning before we get into the message. So, we do have a regular Bible study tonight at 6 o'clock, by the way, to pray. Saturdays at uh, 7.30 in uh, Pasadena on Spirit, Soul, and Body. And both days are open to everybody. Uh, it's all advertised on our website. We have our Bible classes ongoing on our website. Our website is discipleship.org. They're free. And so you just go at your own pace. And, um, the registration can be, um, uh, uh, when we're working on some things. and am hoping to make that a little better. Uh, but once you get registered, it's free just a little bit of a process with that, but once you get on, it's free. It does not go at your own pace, and there's a form to fill out for every class so we we can dialogue with you, uh, if necessary, and so um, uh, so you're not feeling like you're just doing it on your own. Uh, we kind of that's the best way we know how to do this. And, uh, anyway, so uh, they're free and online. And uh, this class that I'm teaching right now is, is a message, but it's also a class. I'm uploading. Uh, the, the, by today, I'll be uploading it to that class, so therefore, in the future, it will be a class that everyone gets today. And so, um, uh, so anyway, also, uh, we this is uh, the 16th, uh, two, uh, uh, this is actually also leap year, not that that has to do with anything in and of itself, but uh, uh, we are having on the last Saturday of the month, which is the 29th. So that's two weeks from this Saturday, not this coming Saturday, but the following Saturday, we're going to have another movie night here, and we're going to be showing God with us. Uh, the first production that Karis Bible College put on, and we're going to be showing it here at 7 o'clock. Uh, we want to just do that before the daylight savings begins to change more, so we can enjoy the darkness uh, to show the movie on the big screen. So uh, so if you're in the neighborhood or you're local, uh, feel free to join us at 7 o'clock on the 29th. It's a Saturday night and we're going to be showing God with us. It's a theatrical production put on by Kev's Bible College. It's got a powerful message, plus the uh, acting, the the, the performance is also very high quality. And so it's a great quality uh, uh, production as well as, uh, more importantly, the message is powerful. And so uh, if you can, join us for that. Alright, without any further ado, I think we're just going to go ahead and join the message this morning. Uh, I may or may not have the scriptures on the on the uh, screen. My uh, air, uh, our Apple TV is not connecting the signal, so I'll, I'll try. If not, we'll just use the old-fashioned way and have your Bibles ready, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll just go that way. Okay. So with that in mind, we're talking about righteousness in the last few weeks, and this is my most favorite message uh, for me to talk about, and. You know, I think every minister, every pastor, uh, people like Andrew, whatever they, we have a lot of different messages that we teach, and some well, but some are just our core ones. And this is one of my core ones, and probably my primary one. Um, and you have Spirit, Soul, Body, and when you take that class in, at Keras, it's called The Basics of Righteousness. Uh, he has his, his own presentation with that. We have Spirit, Soul, and Body. I've also been doing teaches as well, and that's a class we have in our in Our Bible classes, we use Lawson's version for that. But at the same point in time, uh, this, is, this is just what God's revealed to me. And when we started our church back in 2014, I was taught a whole year on righteousness, uh, and I have a whole testimony how that even came about. But and uh, we don't teach on every Sunday, but uh, every once in a while, I bring this message back up. So. The series is actually a combination of uh, whole years of teaching and consolidating it into a few uh, uh, more concise version of, of those teachings. And that makes sense. And uh, um, it just, uh, uh, in everything we do teach, there is a thread of this message throughout everything we teach. Because we believe righteousness is the foundation of the strength. It's the elementary teachings. It's, it's the first principles. And you've got to have the foundation in We have to know who we are. And our, our righteousness is, is, is who we are in Christ. We are righteous. We are justified because of what Jesus did. We, In other words, I always thought growing up, and I, this is, I'm not blaming anybody. I don't know if this is how it was taught or just how I perceived what was taught. How I many of you know sometimes you can show something and someone gets a whole totally different perception of what you just said? And when you hear back to perception, that's not what they were trying to say at all. And so I'm not blaming anybody. Sometimes some people I do know they were teaching it wrong, but some people maybe I just didn't I didn't get it right uh, in my own way of of processing it. And I always thought righteousness was right doing, doing right. And there is an element to that, but that's not what the word means. Because if you're doing right, that is that's. uh, portraying righteousness as a verb, an action. But the word righteousness is used over 500 times. At one point, I think I counted 512. But uh, there are different variations of the word. At the same point in time, the word righteousness is a noun. It's not a verb. A noun is a person, place, or thing. It's an object. It's not an action. We live righteously, the verb form, because we are righteous. We don't live righteous to become righteous. We live righteous because we are. You have to have the seed there first. You have to have the nature there first. An, an apple tree doesn't produce oranges because it's not an orange tree. It's an apple tree. It doesn't produce apples to become an apple tree. It produces an apple apples because it is an apple tree. That makes sense. We live righteously. We live godly. We live holy because we are righteous in Christ. <coughs> and we've used several scriptures to to, to validate that. One of them is that we put off the old man to put on the new man, who is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is who we are, and we need to know who we are in Christ Jesus so we can live it. That making sense, and so it's the core. It's who we are. Yes, there's several scriptures that we can bring out about the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of holiness, but how many know the root? Is, the fruit is not the source. The fruit is a byproduct of the root. There needs to be, there should be the fruit of righteousness evident in our lives. But it's not, you don't start with the fruit, you start with the root. You gotta know who you are, you gotta be grafted in the Christ. You gotta know who you are, You you gotta abide in the vine so that his nature, his fruit, can flow through our lives. When we're not flowing through when we're living in sin, when we're doing wrong, when we're thinking wrong, anything that's not a faith is sin. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life of peace. So it's not just an act of sin like we can think murder and uh, adultery and and other kinds of fornication and whatnot. Those are sins too. Sin sin. But at its core, sin is unbelief. It's not trusting God. It's trusting ourselves. And the now, I'm not trying to go and all that teaching right now. I'll probably get into that a little bit later. And I might teach something along those lines once we're done with this series. But uh, I, I hope I'm, I'm just trying to make a point of righteousness is who we are. It's right relationship with God. We could not be in right relationship with God. We couldn't have any relationship with God because of sin. Jesus became sin, crucified it, buried it and rose again, uh, and and, and he conquered sin, he crucified it, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Sin had, the the penalty for sin was death. So Jesus became sin, died, took our sin, took our penalty, became our propitiation, became the worthy lamb, became our substitute, that would satisfy our, our penalty. You know, if you had a debt, and you owe ten thousand dollars, but you just paid five thousand dollars. Whoever you owe money to might just say, "You know what? Thank you for the five thousand, but that does not satisfy the debt. You still owe five thousand more." And that making sense. Jesus paid it in full. He satisfied it, so we could be in right relationship with God. And because we are in right relationship with God, then God, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we have been bought with the price so that God can fill this house, this temple, with his glory, with himself, the fullness of God, so that he, not us, lives his life through us, righteously and holy. And not only just righteous and holy in a godly way, in an ethical way, in a moral way, but also in power. That we can lay hands on the sick and the recover, that we can walk in the water, we can heal the sick, we can raise the dead, we can calm the storm and sea, we can we can speak to the victory, we can feed the multitudes, we can be the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're not the body in addition to Christ, we are the body of Christ. And but we have to be born again. We have to be born of his nature, we have to be born of righteousness. Uh, in our last teaching series, we talked about in Christ's realities, but towards the end we were focused on verse Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30 that says He, Jesus, has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our, our um, sanctification and our redemption. Jesus has sanctified us. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has declared us righteous in right relationship. But another word for righteousness is also justification. It's the same Greek word. Uh, justification and righteousness are the exact same word in the Greek. We are justified before God because of what Jesus did. Not because of what we've done right or what, even if we did everything right we're still not justified. The Bible says our own righteousness is like filthy rags. It, it's still filthy. It doesn't measure up. Even if we did everything right, the law is holy. The law is good. And actually if you read Hebrews chapter 9, the thing <coughs> that that the way that the law became holy was the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood that made it holy. But even if we didn't know that, we don't, be, we don't become holy and righteous because we keep the law. No, we keep become righteous. and There's only one way to become righteous. There's only one way to become holy, and that's through Jesus. But now that we are, the law is still holy and good. We still keep the law, not to become holy and good, not to become righteous, because we are. Because we are righteous, we still don't commit murder. We still don't commit adultery. We still love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor. as <coughs> yourself. Paul talks about this in Romans and other places. To love one another is to fulfill the law. We still love God. We still love others. Why do we love one another? Because he loves us. Uh, as he is, so are we in this world. Who's he? He's love. The whole context of First John is talking about love. Yes, we can apply 1 John 4, 17, as He is, so are we in this world to other elements of who God is, because He's more than just love, He's other attributes of God. But the context is talking about love, and talking about God, and twice in the context, He, he talks about and even the preceding verse, verse 16, says that God is love. And if God is love as he is, so are we in this world. Those who don't love God, One another don't know God because God is love, and love is of God. And I'm paraphrasing a lot of 1 John chapter 4 right now, even 1 John chapter 3. But we love because He first loved us. We we behold a manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we could be called the children of God. And we are children of God, and as we see Him, we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. As we see God as He truly is, and right now specifically I'm talking about love, we'll be like Him. Whatever your perception of who God is, that's who you will become like. As He is, so are you in this world. And He is righteous. He is holy. And Paul said it this way: I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by the faith of God, but live by faith by the love of God who, who died and gave himself for me. I can't chop that up a little bit. But faith and love work simultaneously. Faith works by love. Uh, there's a scripture we read last night in our Bible, study from from uh, Ephesians chapter three, that we would, uh, uh, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we would be rooted and established in love. I paraphrased that a little bit, but but uh, you, if you're not, if you find that your your faith is not sufficient, or there's a deficiency in your faith, a lot of times there's a deficiency in your life. Your faith, your trust and reliance on God is going to be based on how much you know. He loves you. It's hard to trust someone if you don't know they love you. Every relationship is based on trust. And every relationship is based on uh, 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 love. Uh, faith works by love. You can't... Um, and we're, we're going to get into a little bit of this this morning. We're also talking about righteousness. You know, it says... we. One of the verses we use is Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says that the gospel... Is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for It, it is the power of God unto salvation... To everyone who believes, there's faith. Then it goes on to say, in verse 17, that herein, herein what the 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 gospel, the righteousness is revealed. The gospel reveals righteousness, and it goes on to say that the gospel reveals righteousness from faith to faith. For the just, the righteous shall live by his faith. The right, we are righteous because of what Jesus did, if we're born again, and we the righteous, we the just shall live by our faith as we trust him. We need to trust him in every area of our lives. Not just for healing. Not just for financial provision. Not just for wisdom and other things. But every area of our lives. We need to trust. I need to trust him to be a good husband. I need to trust him to be a good pastor. I need to trust him in every area of my life. I need to trust him in my finances. I need to trust him in my health. I need to trust him in my relationships. In my, in my responsibilities. I need to trust him. And to just live by his faith. And Abraham believed God and it was a credit to him for righteousness. We're righteous because we believe what Jesus did. It says in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 that we, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, uh, um, you know, we, we believe unto righteousness, it says. We believe unto it. It's a gift. We don't earn it. We can't earn it by what we do. I mean, we, our deeds are not sufficient. The penalty for sin was death. We didn't die. Christ did. Christ died once and for all. For all meaning all. And because we are, not, we are reconciled to God. We are righteous with God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He did. We believed it. We received it. And now we're righteous. And now that we're righteous, we live righteously. And that's, I'm not just talking about morality. I'm not just talking about ethics, even though they're all included, they're all included in that. But we can, can live, live in victory, not defeat. We're the head and not the tail. We're above and not beneath. Uh, we're the children of God. We're righteous. And we're making sense. A lot of this is just a recap. So maybe I'm sharing and, and a little bit more. But last week, we, uh, we were talking a lot about love. But this is love, not that we love him, but that he loved us and became our propitiation, which is all about righteousness. And we spent a lot of time, I'm not going to recap all that. I didn't quite finish, I have two more verses I want to get or a few more verses I want to get into, and then we're going to get into uh, talk about, I, m- I remember at the beginning I talked about this message, I divided the whole years of teaching into six major lessons. And they're not the only lessons, actually I think I'm going to be adding a seventh one on here towards the end which has to do with the fruit of righteousness, which I just talked about briefly a moment. I'm going to tag that out at the end. Uh, I taught it before, it became its own message, but I think I'm going to include that in this series. Uh, so I'll, add that. I'll spend more time with that at the end. Um, but I've broken up to uh, six sessions. Now Seventh, I just added another one. But the first one we talked about just uh, the unity of the faith and preaching the same message, and there's one message and it's this message of righteousness. And, and I'm not going to rehash all that again. You'll have to look at Lesson 1 on our website or our first message. And then we talked about just some basics of being established in righteousness. And I rehashed some of that this morning. Uh, and then the third one was being established in His love. And then the fourth one that we're going to be getting into is, uh, I, I entitled it Subtle Beguilement. And I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit in, in a minute. It's talk about being and it's talking about being deceived, it is suddenly. and it's subtly. And I'll talk about that. It'll make more sense in a few moments. Okay? We're not quite there yet. So, with all that being said, I know said a lot. Uh, True with me if you have your Bibles, and I'm going to throw you a curveball here at the beginning, but Zephaniah is a book that most of us don't go to very often. The Zephaniah, yes, there is a book that I called that. It's in the Old Testament. I used to tease people until it was right after Hezekiah. And you're looking for Hezekiah, and there is no Hezekiah. There's a guy Hezekiah, but there's no book. It's, so Zephaniah, it's a, the it's a fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. So if you get the Malachi, just go uh, four books in, and you'll find Zephaniah. Okay? that make it a little easier for you? Okay? If I can get you a road map, sometimes it's a little easier to get there. But we're going to go to chapter 3, and we're going to go to verse 17. I I'm still not connecting to the Wi-Fi. I'll figure that out a little more later. I uh, probably hit a button somewhere. And mm-hmm. uh, until I figure that out. So just bear with me, Zephaniah, because I know we're in a little new territory. It says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. I'm reading actually from the King James right now. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, and he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. And he will join over thee with singing. Uh, What I want to do real quick. uh, I'm going to transition to the Amplified. I know you probably don't have that. I don't have it on the screen. So I apologize for that. But just give me a good ear on this one. It says, The Lord your God in the midst of you. A mighty one. A savior who saves. Again, I'm reading from the Amplified. He Will rejoice over you with joy. If you study that out, it means that God dances over you with singing. He's dancing over you. You're his child. He he loves you so much that he is dancing over you with joy. If you study that out in the I mean the Hebrew here. And I love this though. This is where I want to get to. He will rest in silent satisfaction and in his love. God is satisfied in loving you. I don't know about you, but that's rich for me. God is satisfied in loving you. Not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. That makes sense? He loves I mean, if you think about it, God knows everything about you. There's no secrets with God. He's seen you on your worst days. And some of us might have too many of those. But at that same point in time, He had knows everything about you. He knew you when He didn't want anything to do with God. He still loves you. He thought you were worth dying for. That, I mean, that, that's just huge for me. When I just begin to chew on that and meditate on how much God loves me. I mean, we try sometimes to impress people and, and try to, in some ways, put on a mask of how good we are. But God sees us with the mask on and off. <laughs> he sees us on the worst day. There's no secrets. He, not only that, he knows our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. Good, bad, and ugly. He, he, knows, he, he knows there's no secrets with them. But he is satisfied in loving you. Despite what, what you've done, what you've thought, and everything else. He, he loves you. That's huge. And he goes on and says, And he will be silent... And again, I'm reading from the app, he will be silent and make no mention let I me mean, read that again. He will be silent and make no mention of past sins or even recall them. You know, there's a verse in 1 verse Corinthians 13 that love doesn't keep a record of wrong stuff. God is not keeping a list of all the things you've done wrong. No, he's keeping a list of what Jesus has done for you. That makes sense? I'm not saying the things that we've done wrong are right. To be, again, uh, if we sow to the flesh, of the flesh we will reap corruption. Sin is still deadly. Sin is still wrong. But we awake to righteousness and sin not. We don't sin not become righteous. When you know who you are and hence his nature running, you will live a more holier life than you ever tried on your own. I had my addictions. I had my hang-ups. I tried to fix it in my own strength. But when I knew I was righteous, I allowed him, not me, to set me free from sin and wrong thinking and wrong behaviors. Does make sense? It's a fruit of righteousness. It's a fruit of holiness. Which I not trying to get totally into that yet. But uh, but when I know how much he loves me, he's not he's not giving on my case. I'm not saying he won't reprove us. He, we talked about that. Now, all scriptures. For, powerful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we might be fully equipped for every good work. We need, taught, we need to be reproofed. Yes, he, he disciplines us. Hebrews 12 talks about how a father disciplines his child. But then if we were to even study that out in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, the writer Hebrew quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 that's where he gets the whole concept of a father trains and disciplines his child. Because in Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon writes about that. But if you read the whole chapter of Proverbs chapter 3, he begins the chapter by talking about bind mercy around your neck. Be established, and I'm going to paraphrase, be so established in my mercy. And in that he also says, uh, uh, and that's where we get the most famous scripture that we've we we quote it all the time, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not under understanding in all your ways of knowledge him, and he will direct your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And when I talk about wisdom, I've talked about wisdom last year, and you know, wisdom is all about mercy. God disciplines us, and then really the word discipline in the in the Greek, quoting from Hebrews chapter twelve, is child training. We don't we're not violent to our kids, but we will discipline them. Child training. And actually, if you say the Greek word for discipline, it's almost identical, not quite, but it's almost identical to the word disciple. It's discipleship. There's training involved. Punishment has to do with your past, but discipline has to do with your future. Discipline is to help you. A student, an a, 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 a apprentice, uh, uh, someone who's learning, uh, even whether this be in uh, something academically or a trade or uh, a hobby or a, a sport. Uh, 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 just think of I just think of the Olympians. You know, when they train, they're disciplined. They have to go through discipline to become a good athlete. If you're going to be good in any trade, any type of business or hobby or, or sport, you're going to have to be disciplined to. Be, if you're going to be the best of the best, that makes sense. You can't show me any vocation or any 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 athlete who they they, they might be very gifted in that sport, you know, whatever that might be, but they have to have discipline. They have to have a good, strong coach who loved them, but loved them enough to train them hard, and train them with love, and balance that. But they're disciplined, and no discipline, even training, is pleasant in the time. But but they're not here to destroy the spirit of the athlete of their, whoever they're coaching or training, but they are here to discipline them. Discipline is for our future. It's to make us better. It's not about the past. I'm not saying there's not consequences and whatever, but it's all about it's child training. And it's all done with mercy. Because that Coach, That teacher, that disciplinary wants to see the best out of them, not the worst. That makes sense. They want to see them succeed and be successful and, uh, and, and whatnot. Is that making sense? And, and I, can, I can go a lot deeper in that. But God doesn't make mentions of the past. That sense. He says he will exalt over you with singing. We're talking about the love of God, God and we're talking about righteousness, and we're talking about righteousness from the perspective of being established in his love. God loves you so much. He's not focused on what you've done wrong. He's trying to teach you what he has done right. And when he wants you to be disciplined in who he is and what he's made you to be. That makes sense? I know. And when we when we went to Bible college uh, 2013 to 2016, we were going four days a week, four hours a day, 16 hours a week total. And just that discipline, we matured so much. We grew so much. It wasn't just the teaching, but it was also the worship and the fellowship and like-mindedness, the whole enchilada, the whole environment, the whole process, and we matured. There was a discipline about it. And we had to discipline ourselves in a sense. But, uh, and, uh, uh, I mean, a coach can only do so much if the athlete's not going to participate. You, can, you, can't, you can't force it uh, More if the athlete's not going to participate. That makes sense. They have to be willing to come under that discipline. It won't work. It won't be productive. It, 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 the, the coach can only go so far. But uh, uh, God wants to train us. He wants to train us not just for what we don't need to do wrong, but he wants to train us in who we are. We're establishing his love. We're establishing our Father's love. We're establishing righteousness. That makes sense? That's what discipleship's about. That we're so grounded. We're so established that no matter what comes at us, I'm not saying it's going to always be a bed of roses, but we are establishing who we are. We're establishing his love. That the Lord I got from the mystery, he's your Savior. And when you need him, he is there. So that makes sense? Let's, let's give a few more scriptures on, on this. It's going to be the Son of Solomon. Again, you're using a lot of different scriptures I gonna go know, This is right after uh, Proverbs. It's a somewhat short book. It only has eight chapters in it. But if you find it, go to chapter two. Song of Solomon. Some it called the Son of Psalms. Some of song. Either way, it's S-O-S. <laughs> you know, S-O-S is for help, right? So, and I love this, uh, you know, I know sometimes it's hard to understand this, this book, but it's an out al- me, when I read this book, it's an allegory of Christ's love for us. It's a love story. You know, and it's, it, it, it's, it's wordy. In that, in that, if you think of a love story, if you think of something like Shakespeare... You know, Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's got a similar type of love language in there. But it's a love story between Christ and us, his church, his bride. And that's the way I read this book. That's the way I look at it. Uh, and it's beautiful when you read it in the right lens. That makes sense? So we're in Psalm of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4, to start with. And it says, and he brought me to his bank, the banqueting house. Actually, I'm in the Amplified. Let me, let me go back. I'm going to go back to the New King James, okay? He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I love that. What's a banner? A banner is like a flag. It's a banner. That was very popular, uh, more than sometimes it is today. But even today, they burn flags, and the flags are very huge. Uh, banner also, if you study this out in Hebrew, it means standard. God's standard over you is love. That's his standard. That's his banner over you. His love. He measures everything. His standard of you is measured by His love for you. He's brought you to His banqueting table so that you can feast on who He is, on His love, on every attribute He has. All right. Same chapter, but scroll down to verse 16. Verse 16, Thomas of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his, he feeds his flocks among the lilies. Again, there's a lot of poetic words in here, but he we are his beloved. He is mine and I'm his. Sherry and I can say that about each other. You know, this is very Valentine's world language. I didn't plan this for Valentine's, but hey, it works. You are God's Valentine and He is yours. I think I said that. I mean I mean it both ways, however it came out, but I just said uh, you are his and he is you yours, okay? Uh, same book, uh, but go, fast forward to chapter 4. Psalm of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7. There's a lot more scriptures I can use. I'm just bringing out a few. Now, but I love this one. I use this one a lot. And read it as if God is your Savior, Jesus, is saying it to you. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. There is no spot. You are up there? Oh my brother. With that in mind, with that scripture in mind, fast forward to me to Ephesians chapter 5. I think we went here last week, but I want to go here again. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 25. Actually, go with me to verse 32 real quick. And then we'll go backwards. We just read from Psalm of Solomon and it says, You are all fair, my beloved, there is no spot in you. You know, sometimes when we read that and we know our own lives, it's like, what do you mean there's no spot in me? I can show you all the spots right now. You know? I'm not just talking about flesh or freckles or whatever. I'm talking about our own lives or the way we thought, behaviors, things that we've done wrong, things we have messed up. And because we now also know that anything that's not a faith is sin. So we know also not just the things we've done wrong, but the things we haven't done right. And we look at our lives sometimes <coughs> and we can be very critical towards ourselves. But we need to have a healthy image of who we are. And we can never have a healthy image of who we are if we don't know who God says we are. And we don't align who we think we are to what God says we are. That makes sense? We need to see ourselves the way God sees us. Not the way, in many ways, it doesn't matter what other people say of you. It matters what God says of you. In one sense of the word, it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It matters what God thinks of you. But it is important that you align how you see yourself the way God sees you. And you see others the way God sees them. Uh, when you get this right, loving people, loving your enemies, becomes a lot easier. Because it's not you doing it, it's God in you doing it. That makes sense? People have done some very nasty things to us through the years. But because we know His love towards us, and His, we allow His love, His nature to flow through us, we can love others. In the flesh, we find sometimes, because of the nature of what they've done, very hard to do. But we're not flesh blood. We know no man has to be flesh. We are born again. We are not natural. We are supernatural, born of God. That makes sense? But uh, Ephesians five, thirty-two says, This is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ and the church. Again, what we're going to read is a very beautiful uh, language about a husband and a wife, and it does apply for marriages. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christ and the church. That makes sense. It's twofold. It can work. It can work for marriages, yes. But that's not what he's talking about. He's using the marriage as an allegory of Christ and the church. That makes sense. Uh, scroll backwards to verse twenty-five, and he says, "This husbands love your wives." Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That last phrase that we just read sounds very familiar in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7. You are all fair, my beloved. There is no spot in you. How did we get there? We got there without any spot or wrinkle because of his love. Because he has sanctified and cleansed her. He has presented us to himself as a glorious church. That makes sense? How did he do that? Through the cross. Through his love. This is love, not that we love him, but that he loved us and became our propitiation. He took our sin, He put it on Himself, He crucified it, He buried it, and it says in Romans 4, 25, that He was raised for our justification. He was raised for our righteousness. Baptism, that's what baptism represents. We died with Christ, we, when we raised together with Christ, but we didn't come out of the water, the same man that went in the water, we came in as a brand new creation. It, and we, as a brand new creation Christ Jesus. is an allegory, it's a... It's a it's, I love baptism because it, it helps us see with our own minds, with our own eyes, what baptism represents, that we are a brand new creation. We were crucified with Christ, we buried in sin, and we don't come out of the waters and say, man. It's a spiritual exercise, just like communion and other, uh, and other things that we can do, uh, an ordinance, that helps illustrate what Christ has done for us. And it's very powerful. Just the same thing. Marriage can that we you know really technically uh, a biblical marriage is actually in the marriage bed, but uh, uh, in a civil way we actually have a license, a marriage license, and there's a there's a there's a procedure for that. Some people can just go to love and go go to the courthouse and, and get married legally, and and go to that go to the marriage bed and biblically be married, but we also it's more beautiful to have a ceremony. It's more beautiful. It's more beautiful and very uh, beneficial, not just for the the, the the couple, but also to tell the world we're married, and it's a proclamation to the world. We don't technically we don't have to have a ceremony, but it's more beautiful to do it that way, and it's more memorable to do it that way, and it's, I believe it's more proper to do it that way. If that makes sense. But the real that the the the, the wedding doesn't make the marriage. The relationship does, and the, the biblical way of doing it. That makes sense? But if it, 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 baptism is me, it, it doesn't mean anything if the, we don't understand the, the benefits and, the, and the importance of the marriage. I, as a pastor, and, he, uh, and even when we got married, we didn't want to put all of our money into uh, the wedding. We had a nice, beautiful wedding to accord to our taste, but we'd rather put our money and our focus on the marriage, not so much the wedding. If you want one, having a beautiful wedding. If you want one, go for it. But just make sure that you focus on more on the marriage than you do the wedding. That makes sense. And I'm not here to talk about marriage today. That so we're not doing marriage counseling. Uh, but uh, but anyway, and I spent a lot more time on these verses than I thought I was going okay, uh, to. Okay, turn will be the Second Corinthians chapter eleven, and I'm going to use this verse to transition, and this again become my main text for uh, part four of this. Um, series that we're talking about when I talk about beguiled, uh, some of beguilement, and I'll explain that in a moment. So it's going to be in second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. That makes sense what I've talked about so far this morning, and now I'm going to be kind of switching gears and going in a different direction, but I'm going to use what I've been teaching on so far to get to where I'm at, Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. I mean, 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 11, verse 2. And Paul speaking here says, For I, Paul, am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, this is Paul speaking, lest somehow, as a servant deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with this. Okay, we'll stop right there. Um, there's a lot in here, and I'm going to break this up in a little bit. Um, um, as to go forward. But first of all, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that may represent you as a chaste person of Christ. Actually, you know what? I'm going to come back to this. Hold your finger here. We're going to come back here. There's no more time. But real quick, go with me to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. Thessalonians 3, verse 10. And I've been here before and I don't have it on the screen, so um, sorry about that. In context, Paul is talking about here in Thessalonians that he, he wants to go see them, this church in Thessalonica. And he says, Night and pray. And so, First Thessalonians, Thessalonians, right after, uh, I, I, I always call it popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, uh, God so Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Popcorn, That's right after that. You got uh, you got Timothy's and you got Titus. All, all the T guys are right there together. 1 Thessalonians is right after Colossians. So 1 Thessalonians 3. Every time I mention that acronym, I get hungry. <laughs> But night and day, he says, I'm praying, I pray, I'm praying exceedingly that we may see your face to face, or see your face. And this is really the last part of this verse is really what I want to get to. And perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul said, I want to come and perfect that which is lacking in your faith. What does he mean by that? What do you mean, perfect that which is lacking in your faith? You know, from one glance, you can look at that and you can get offended. What do you mean by faith? It means perfection. You know, don't we all have the same measure of faith? And, and if there's other scriptures that can bring that, yes. But sometimes we need to perfect it. Um, what does it mean by perfect? If you say that word perfecting in the Greek, it means this. It means to complete. It means to restore. It means to mend. It means to equip. I like that word. Uh, it means to put in order. It means to strengthen. How many of you know that your faith is not always up to par? <laughs> have you ever... ever if, we, if our faith was always at the par, we would be living a lot differently. We'd be seeing a lot of different results. But we're, we're, and we're not. And Paul wants to come come not to condemn. He's not condemning them. But he does want to come equipped. He does want to come strengthened. He does want to come amend and point them in the right direction. But, I mean, there's different ways of looking at this. If my faith is in what I'm doing, that faith needs to be because my faith needs to be in Christ, not me. My faith can't be in Andrew. My faith can't be in my pastor. My faith can't be in my spouse. My faith can't be in someone else I look up to or my mentor. My faith needs to be in Jesus and his word. And, uh, 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 and not only does it need to be faith that we know it. We need to know it. Without knowledge, my people are destroyed by the lack of knowledge, but we need to believe it. We need to trust it. We need to rely on it. And I can tell sometimes with just talking with people. That's why sometimes fellowship is so good. Because if we talk, we can see where people are at. Not to condemn, them, but so we can admonish one another. So we can encourage one another. But I can hear, if you listen for it, you can hear unbelief or you can hear belief. What am I trusting in? There's some people that come up with prayers. And I know we've all been there, but sometimes they come up with prayers. And, and we all need prayer. And there's nothing wrong with coming up with prayers. That's, that's very biblical. Uh, uh, if we need prayer, let them call upon the elders of the church. Let us pray for one another. There's several scriptures that can bring about how we pray for one another. How we know to pray for one another if we don't know what to pray for. And it's okay to come for prayer. But as they're praying, or they're, as they're sharing the request, I'm hearing everything that's wrong, but I'm not hearing, one, and, not, and I'm not saying this with everybody, with our every situation, but sometimes like I'm not hearing one thing about what they're trusting in. You know, even when we minister to different people in the hospital or whatever, uh, sometimes after I hear it, I want to hear it. I'm not trying to be insensitive or, or rude. Or, 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 sometimes we just need to get it off our chest and we need to, need to show that. There can be a benefit to that. But I say, we don't want to stay there. That's not healthy. That's not good. David in his psalms sometimes would complain, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. And he, he, uh, he said, bless the Lord on my soul. He's telling his soul what to do. He's telling his mind, his heart, his emotions what to do. <coughs> Put your hope in God. Uh, there are other scriptures that he encourages himself. But uh, sometimes when I'm mentioning, I'm asking, I'll ask them a question. What verse are you standing on? What verse are you holding on to? What verse, I mean, uh, and, and or, or, like, I understand what's going on, and I've been there too. But I have to, in my own mind, when I'm going through something, a trial challenge, or I just need wisdom, Lord, I thank you for wisdom. I thank you that you're going to guide my steps. I thank you that my, by your stripes you, I am healed. I thank you that, Lord, you are my provider, that you are going to meet this need. I thank, I, and Thanksgiving is a very powerful way to shift from complaining about something, moaning and groaning about something, being focused and, and all emotional about something, to get our emotions and our soul focused on the Lord back on his word. It comes from hearing his word, and I'm going to start thanking him. I'm going to start magnifying God and not the problem. I'm not saying the problem doesn't exist, but the problem needs to bow to the finished work of the cross. The problem needs to bow to God's word, and God has given me authority to bind and to loose and to speak things in the being and whatnot. And so I just start thinking, but I need to get my own mind into a different gear, into a different focus. I need to take out the lens of the flesh and put it on the lens of the spirit. And I need to see this from God's point of view, from a biblical point of view. I'll get into scriptures. I'll get a lesson to a teaching. Sometimes I'll get into worship. Sometimes I'll pray in the spirit. Sometimes I will do all of the above. But I've got to get my heart into gear because faith comes from hearing the Word of God. And I need sometimes I need to call a pastor. Sometimes I need to call a brother or sister to admonish me. There have been times where because of something I'm going through, I know I'm not thinking right. I know I'm not, I'm not there. And I told him, I said, I know I'm not thinking right right now. Please admonish me. I, I, you know, I think we all should have somebody in our lives that can speak into our lives. I don't think that should be a large group, because some people, you know, I don't think we need to hear a lot of different voices. But we need to have some people to have the authority to speak in their life, and I think it's going to be a very small group. Andrew has people like that can speak in his life. Ultimately, God's going to speak in our lives, but there's people that we trust, and not we're trusting them, we're trusting God in them. That makes a difference? But, uh, but there are people that, 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 that we value what they say because they, they hear God. Uh, Samuel is known as one, uh, if you read First Samuel chapter 3, his words didn't fall to the ground. He had favor with God and favor with man. Jesus became like that too. He had favor with God. He grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man. There's just people that we learn to trust. God put in our lives. I'm making sense with this, but there's times where our faith needs to be strengthened. Our faith needs to be, it's not relying on the right thing. Let go with me, one more qu- quick, and we'll get back to the Corinthians. But go with me to the, the, the Jeremiah, Jeremiah seventeen, and anyway, we'll pick up verse five, Jeremiah seventeen five. And whenever I talk about faith or trusting God, I always love using this scripture. <coughs> It says, Cursed is a man who, verse 5, Jeremiah 17, 5, Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when the good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts is in the Lord and whose hope is, is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So there's two, there's two uh, kinds of men here. One's trusting God, one's trusting flesh. Flesh could mean trusting himself, or trusting others, or both. Okay, But it's trusting flesh, it's not trusting God. The one man is cursed, one man is blessed. The one who's trusting flesh is cursed, the one who's trusting God is blessed. me so far? And I like it, I read out of the New King James, but in the King James, in verse uh, 6, when I teach this, I teach this as both men are, both men are really going through the same circumstance. Where one's blessed and one's cursed. One's trusting God, one's trusting the flesh. But when I teach this, I teach this, But both men have a blind spot. What's a blind spot? You ever go driving and someone's driving in an area where you can't see them? Or you're driving at an intersection because of a shrub or a building. You can't see the cars coming. Is it called a blind spot? You know, and so, because you're blind. Not because you're blind or you're being lazy. It's just a blind spot. You have to actually purposely make sure you... And that's where a lot of accidents happen uh, because you can't see in that area. The mirror, it's blocked. There's no mirror or, or anything that's, that's going to see that area in the blind spot. I don't like it when someone's driving to my blind spot. I try hard not to drive in someone else's blind spot because I know they can't see me. A truck, especially. If they can't see me, in the, if I can't see their mirrors, they can't see me. And so, so I'm in one sense, I'm playing, I'm playing chicken because uh, I'm in their blind spot and they can't see me. And so, I, want, I, don't want to, I don't want to say they're wrong. I want to get out of that blind spot. Sometimes when I'm passing a truck, I'm speeding up to get by, by, by that guy. Uh, That's an no offense. I praise God they're driving. They have a job and they're doing things to bring things to the store. But at the same point in time, I don't want to sit there. I'm just trying to describe a blind spot. Okay? But the King James, uh, uh, New King James does the same in, in verse 6. But it says, in verse 6, it says, "...for he shall be like the heath in, or the shrub in the desert." I switch to the King James in my Bible. And shall not see when the good comes. He doesn't see the good when it comes. The good is coming to the cursed man. The the, the one who's trusting the flesh. It's coming, but he doesn't see it. Why? Because he's so focused on the flesh. He's so focused on himself or or others or both. He's not focused on, in other words, he's not focused on trusting God. He's focused on trusting himself or others, his flesh for strength. He doesn't see the good when it comes. It's there, but he doesn't see it. That, and, and scroll down to verse 8, and I'm going to read this for the King James. The wording will be a little different than maybe your translation, depending on what translation you have. But he, well, he's talking about the blessed man now. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not, most of your translations will say, shall not fear, but the King James says, shall not see when the heat comes. The blessed man is going through the same drought, the same famine. That the cursed man is going through, but he doesn't see the heat when it comes, even though it's there. The good is there and the heat is there, but he's not focused on the heat, he's focused on trusting God. And because he's trusting God, he doesn't fear when the heat comes. He's not trusting, he doesn't even see it. Because his focus is in God, and He plants it. he's planted by the waters. He even goes on to say that he is not even careful in the year of drought. There's a drought going on. But he's not, he doesn't even see the drought. It's there, naturally speaking. Uh, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't have to be careful in the year of drought. And his leaves are always green. It's fruitful. It's productive. It's healthy. It's full life. And fruitfulness. We're talking about fruit holiness, fruit righteousness. That making sense? So if we're not if that's not the, 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 the our life, if that's not our testimony of our life, then something needs to be perfected in our faith. That makes sense? If we're not getting the results of a blessed man who's trusting God, then it's not God. We know it's not God, know it's not his word. Something is wrong with our faith. Something needs to be perfected, something needs to be mended, strengthened, equipped, maybe even corrected. That makes sense? I mean, you no. Know, so if you fly a plane one degree off, you could be going on. You could be thousands of miles away, no matter how far you go in that direction in that one degree. We. Can, but sometimes it sounds like we're splitting hairs, but sometimes it's a matter: of, Are we really trusting God? Or are we trusting ourselves? Are we trusting that our faith in God? Or are we trusting God? <coughs> I want to say it again. Sometimes we're so focused on trusting. Our faith in God, versus actually trusting God, is working. That's a very fine line sometimes, but it's a fine line between it working and not working. I, I, I've used this illustration before, in no way, shape or form I'm thinking I'm sharing, but we had a time back before we lost everything in 2009, but it was in that season of time, and we were driving from Glendora to uh, Riverside, and, and Ukaipa, where I was working, and she was working Riverside, and, uh, don't mean to paint a that picture of you in Western you probably have no clue what I'm talking about. But at the same point in time, um we were driving one morning, we we're on the bird everything was always crumbling financially and whatnot, and we were so we were we weren't doing so well, uh, with just our mind and our emotions and whatnot. We were driving early and, and we were talking, I forget what we're exactly specifically talking about, but we were talking and, and we, were, uh, we were talking about trusting God somewhere. And all of a sudden I look over to the passenger seat and uh, Sherry's just like, and I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> Whatever you do, don't don't do it here. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it had the wrong connotation in my mind, but, but I just didn't know, I went, I'm not trying to pick on her, but i was like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm trying to trust God. And again, I'm, I, I, and this is why I'm not picking on her, because I know I might not have had that expression before, Per, per se but I know that sometimes in my mind that's exactly what's going on I'm trying with all my might to trust God in some ways he she just had an outward expression of what that kind of looked like and it was like but something just kind of registered I didn't have the theology I have now but I was like you know what obviously that's not going to be how it works because she's trusting what she's doing she, I mean and I get she she's sincerely trying but trusting it, you know it just when you trust somebody, when you trust God, I mean, to me, it's, 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 it, in one sense, it shouldn't be that hard. In a sense, we either trust Him or we don't. We either believe Him or we don't. What are some examples of this? I mean, I, I love the Soterian who came to Jesus. He just trusted God in His Word. The Syrophoenician woman who was... Uh, persisting with God, to, uh, Jesus, to heal her her, 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 I think her daughter. You know, she just believed God. and She wasn't going to take no for an answer. She just believed it. The centurion just believed it. Uh, there's, there's, we have other stories where they just took God at His word and believed it. Um, you know, children. I mean, we had a story of uh, when we were at Bible college. A father and a daughter were there. The father had some. Uh, he wasn't seeing everything as up to par. His vision wasn't up to 2020 20 vision and whatnot, so he struggled reading sometimes. And so we prayed with him, and his daughter was there. She's probably about 10 or something, and that may, maybe a little older, I don't know. But uh, we got done praying with her, and uh, uh, her daughter turned her down, okay, now read this. She expected, if we prayed, for his healing of his eyes, that he should be able to read. So let's test this out. Let's do it. You know, she—that was her expectation. She just took God at His word that when we pray, it's going to work. And we were praying for His eyes, so let's let do this. If not, let's pray again. Whatever we got to do, but we, that's faith. She's trusting God at His word. She wanted her dad to exercise his faith and read, not just not not just you know. Sometimes when we pray for one another, we it just uh, it's it's encouraging. Praise God for that. But I want to see results. I want to see it work. Now, am that making sense? And uh uh uh, uh 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 why am I going with this? Let's go back to Second Corinthians chapter eleven. God wants to perfect that which is lacking in our faith. making and none of this is a pick on anybody, that's not what I'm after. And actually, in many ways, that's my heart here, is that we would help perfect that which is lacking in your faith or even my faith. Hopefully, I'm making sense. I don't know. Um, uh, Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. And Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He says, but I fear lest somehow, as a servant deceived Eve, or beguiled Eve, by his craftiness or subtlety, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I'll pause there for a moment. The enemy's most effective way to get us. He has no authority over us, but he can deceive us. He can beguile us. How did... And Paul's using an analogy, the story of the enemy, the serpent, deceiving Eve. And he says, the same way that the serpent beguiled Eve, I fear that Satan is going to try to beguile you. The same way. It might not be over a fruit. It might not be over a Jew. But the same way that he beguiled Eve, he, he's going to try to beguile you. That's what, and it's, He's going to do it with craftiness. He's going to do it with subtlety to get us, and how does he do that? Well, if we think about the story, first of all, of Eve, God had already told Adam and Eve that I have created you in my own image, in my own likeness. He said that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, in that context. That was that God had already told them what, how God had created them. But when the enemy came to do a serpent, to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and i got going to paraphrase the conversation, but he says, did God really say? Did God say that? And, he, and then part of the temptation was, too, that if you partake of this fruit, you will become like God. Well, they already were like God. Basically, the the, the beguiling, if I can narrow it down, was the enemy was beguiling Eve to distrust what God had already said. Because he, he said, did God really say? The, one of the enemy's main tactics is to get you to disbelieve this word. Where does faith come from? Hearing the word. And if we can question the word or if he can get us to question the word he's going to shipwreck our faith. And he's going to do that subtly. That makes it so, uh, he, that, that's a danger but he uses deception. And how do we know that when you're deceived you don't know it? You can't know you're deceived and be deceived. It, it doesn't work. Any more than you can have cold fire or dry water. You can't have it. it, it it's it, you can't have that connotation. It won't work. But, man, enemy mean, will deceive us into believe, disbelieving God. In other words, when it comes down to it, Eve believed the snake, the talking snake, versus what God said. She didn't necessarily reason all that. I'm not going to revolt against God and disbelieve God. It was subtle. It was a subtle thing. He beguiled her. And yeah, the simplicity does in Christ. The same thing happened with Jesus. Tr- he tried to do the same thing with Jesus. Remember the three temptations. God had just said, if you read the context, not just that particular chapter, depending on which gospel book you're in, he had, God had just said audibly, You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He just made that audible. Satan heard that too. Okay? And then part, part of the temptations he did with Jesus, if you are the Son of God, in other words, prove you're the son of God. We don't have to prove Satan anything. We are. We take God at His word. We don't have to prove it, then that makes it true. No, we take God at His word, and that settles it in our mind. Is that making sense? He was, he was in a way, trying to get Jesus to question who he was. In other words, he was getting him to question what God had said. In Jesus' case, it was an audible voice. Satan didn't believe. I think it was audible too with uh, Adam and Eve. They didn't have the written word yet. It was an audible voice. But besides that, it was what God said. And what God said they were. God told Adam and Eve, You are created in my image and likeness. You are already like God. Satan came to question that. God, God told uh, the Father, told Jesus, You are my beloved son, who am well pleased. Satan was giving him to question that. God said that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are the beloved of God. There's other attributes of who we are. We're we're talking about righteousness. We're also recently just talking about love. And the enemy, the same way that the enemy will beguile Eve, Paul fears and he's jealous over us with God. He's using some strong language. He's trying to woe us and warn us that be careful, be sober minded. Because the enemy wants to beguile you the same way he beguiled Eve and even Jesus. I added that part in, but it's the same. The same way the enemy tried to beguile the first Adam, he tried to beguile the second Adam, or the last Adam. The enemy only has a few strategies under his belt. And that's his main strategy, is to beguile you. And Paul, the apostle Paul, the the apostle of grace, and most of the revelation we have about Jesus came because of Paul. And he's our teacher too. And he's wanting us to he's trying to warn us. He, I can just hear Paul's heart. He's wanting to warn us that we make sure that we don't allow the enemy to beguile us from, from trust from distrusting what God said and trusting what the enemy is trying to conceive in our hearts. That makes sense? Makes sense? I hope uh-huh, we makes sense. Because um <coughs> First of all, well, he says, let me go back to verse 4 here real quick. Or 2, excuse me. For I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You know, again, God is out there in relationship with us. We're talking about righteousness, and our definition for righteousness is a right relationship with God. We couldn't have a relationship with God because of sin. But God took sin so we could be in the right relationship with God. And now we can be ex- married to God. But the enemy wants to make us think because of what we've done wrong. To so question that. So I don't know about you, but sometimes I question. I find myself, in a sense, questioning my righteousness. Because I see the things I've done at times. I see the way I think at times and i I know I'm a lot better than I was, and I, I've grown a lot more than I used to be, but I still know that I have my bad days at times. I have my bad moments at times i not I, I am not batting a thousand every single day every I want to, and I believe I know I'm better now than I used to be a lot better now I've grown, and I don't fall under the same traps, but there's sometimes I still have my bad days I, i'm not, I, I'm not always on. I have to be reminded. I need to come back, and just, I, I just need. I, I, am I making sense? Because I hope I'm not the only one that messes up once in a while, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, and but when I when I do mess up, I know the enemy wants to condemn me. I know the enemy wants to uh, qu- me to question my salvation, or different other aspects, or question that I even entitled to be healed, <coughs> or whatever. The enemy is always going to try to mess with my mind. And sometimes we need good teaching of uh, Paul and other people to come to out fact that it's lacking in our faith and to, to get us to know that we. you are all fair, my beloved. There's no spot in you. We need to be reminded of that. Um, we need to get our eyes off the heat, off the, off the drought and get our eyes on His goodness so that we can prosper and be good in many ways. And not just financially, but in every which way. You know, uh, I'm not going to go to it. I'm not going to teach it like that. But if you read Romans chapter seven, <clears throat> Paul actually uses an allegory of being married to the law versus being married to Christ. And I'm paraphrasing this a lot. We're not. We're we're a spouse to one husband, as Christ. And if you read it, and there's a lot of language also in Proverbs about this too. Uh, we used to have a teacher uh, who used to talk was able to compare very well, better than I can. Uh, but uh, he had a stronger revelation I did on this particular topic. But Paul uses the language in Romans 7 that it's, al- it's almost like spiritual adultery to be married to the law because we're married to Christ. Like that make sense? I'm not going to teach all this right now, but we're married to Christ. What? We're going to get into it again. I'm not going to get this far today because I'm running out of time. But we cannot be justified by the deeds of the law. We're only justified because of what Jesus did. At the same point in time, there's a purpose for the law. It brought us to Christ, first of all. And we still live holy and righteous because we are righteous and holy. But we we are not justified because we keep the law. We keep the law because we are justified. We have to keep that in mind. We have to. We, we can't get those backwards. We have to keep those in the right balance and the right perspective. But the enemy will sometimes use the law to trip us up. To think that uh, uh, I mean, there's some language in Colossians and and, and Galatians where God has God said that He He uh, crucified the the, the the ordinances that were against us. He's talking about the law. He crucified that. And I, I don't have the language in front of me right now, but it's just a. Uh, um, but the enemy will use the law to, if, as a hard taskmaster, he will use the law to to, uh, uh, to corrupt our minds. Go with me real quick here, or well, before you do, read verse 3 with me one, one more time. But I fear that somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. How does God, the enemy, use our minds? Well, go with me real quick to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, and we're going to figure out verse 14. And we were here a few weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 4, 13, remember, the enemy is going to corrupt our minds. How does he corrupt our minds? It says here in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 3, but their minds were what? Blinded. Blinded is, as it, uh, is as it's, uh, if you're blinded in the context that he's talking about, he's talking about deception. He's talking about being beguiled. Their minds were blinded, for until this day the same bell remained and lifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because of, which is also called the law, because the bell is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses, the law, is read, uh, in the context, he's talking a lot about the law. I could bring this all out, but uh, for time, I'm making this short. But a bell lies in her heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the bell, this blinder, this deception, is taken away. Scroll down to chapter 4. Verse 3. Same context. Don't get confused by the different chapters. Sometimes the chapters and verses are just there for reference purposes. But chapter 4, verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled or blinded to those who are perishing. Whose minds? Verse 4. The God of this age. I've read that before, and some people thought that was God. No, that's not God. That's the God of this age. That's Satan. The God of this age has blinded who do not what believe. There's the faith again. There's the believing. Faith. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who... The gospel is not an it. The gospel is a who. I feel like I'm talking Dr. Seuss. It's a who. If the image of God should shine on them. I know this is deep. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to break it up in bite-sized pieces for you. But the enemy wants to blind our minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. In other words, let me rephrase this. He wants to blind us from the gospel. That reveals The righteousness of God. I just typed several scriptures up together in that same sentence. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, Romans 1, 16, 17. And he wants to blind us from that ministry of righteousness that he just talked about in chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. It's called the ministry of righteousness. In the context of 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to verse 13, Paul talks about how the law had glory. The ministry of condemnation and death had glory, but the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the spirit, exceeds much more in glory. And and this law, the ministry of condemnation and death, is like a veil that blinds people's hearts, our minds. And the only way to remove this blinding or this veil is to preach Christ. But the enemy wants to use even the law, because that's how he blinds us, is through the law. The law is the holy good, but he wants to blame the thinking that we have to keep the law to become holy good. That is the deception. That is questioning what God said. We're not justified by keeping the law. We're justified by Jesus. The law wasn't given so that we can save ourselves. The law was given to show us that we need a Savior. Jesus. The law can't save you. Keeping the law can't save you. Jesus can. It, the law wanted to show us that we, without Jesus, are hopeless. We are, in other words, I mean this in the right way, in other words, without Jesus, we are damned to hell. We, we There's no hope. We need... To, the, the law doesn't have mercy. The law doesn't have grace. It doesn't grade on the curve. It doesn't have mercy. You, If you broke the law, you die. That's why Jesus... God told Adam, if you eat this, you will surely die. Because he did that, Jesus had to die for us. We couldn't die for ourselves. Because if we died, that's all that would have happened. We would have just died. But God, Jesus, who was sinless, as our propitiation, he died so that he could rise again. And because we are now in Christ Jesus. I'm tying a lot of scriptures here together, but and my heart is that we become established in this. Because if we're not established in this, the enemy, like he beguiled Eve, will try to beguile us, to think any different. That makes sense. He goes on, if you go back real quick, to 2 11, where we were, he goes on to say, verse 4, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which we have not received, Or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, this last phrase, that you may put up with it. Paul is jealous with a godly jealousy. He's fearing in a a, a righteous way that we would hear a different gospel, a different version of Jesus, a different message, and put up with it. Paul does not want us to put up with a watered-down version of the gospel that making sense because if we do that is a deception the way out in the enemy will be godless we need to be established on this keep this in mind but go with me to Ephesians chapter 4 we were here we were here before and our, our serious but I'm trying to tie a lot of scriptures we've already done I'm trying to tie all this together as I go forward again verse 11 Ephesians 411. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a perfect man, to the measure of the, full, uh, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We talked a lot about this in, in our first lesson. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children... Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning and craftiness of deceitful blood in there's a lot there, but I like reading this actually in the King James because after verse uh, after ver- there's, actually, there's between verse eleven and verse sixteen is one sentence, and there's three colons in this and this, and at the end of verse twelve there's a colon, and at verse thirteen there's a colon. And there's also another colon after, after verse 15. but I'm not going to read that right now. But in other words, when a colon is, a colon, he's going to expound on what he just said. That makes sense? So God has given us the fivefold ministry as gifts. He talks about that in verse 8 of this context. He's given us gifts. The apostles, pastors, all, all the fivefold ministry are gifts to the church. They're gifts. They're not better. Than any of us. They're just gifts. They have a a gift. They have a a job to do, like we all have a job to do. But they're gifts. And God's given us these gifts. My job as a pastor, because that's who I am, that's my gifting, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What ministry? Edifying, building up one another. Till we all come, not just you, not just me, but till we all come to the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, that we're perfect again, to, 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 to the measure of the full stature of God. And in other words, God, my job is to help equip the saints to the work of the ministry, until we minister to one another, so we all come to maturity, so we all grow up. Why do we want to grow up? So that we, verse 14, don't, are not always children, spirit, spiritually speaking, and being taught by every wind of doctrine. If we're not establishing righteousness, if we're not establishing the truth, we will be like children tossed by every wind of doctrine, and if we're tossed by every wind of doctrine, the enemy can brainwash us, he can trick us, he can deceive us just the same way he beguiled Eve. that makes sense and if we are, Paul fears that we would put up with it and there's some people who my heart breaks for them I'm not mad at them, I'm not mad at I'm not mad at anybody, but I'm mad at the mad devil, and I'm mad at the message that they have believed. And some people have just believed a lie; they don't know it's a lie. They think it's the truth, but it's not the truth. And it's they're, they're, if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled. That there's a perishing. There's an element of perishing going on in their life, whether that be physically or or financially or every which way, or even just doctrinally. But I want everyone to be equipped for every good work. My heart is that. It's not about building a church, or a dynasty. It's about building people. So that they can do and be who God has called them to be and do what God has called them to do. And whether I'm their pastor or not their pastor, I still have the gift of a pastor. I still have the operation of a pastor. And even throwing that out I'm, as a fellow believer, as an able minister of the gospel, because we all are, as a brother, as someone who just loves, I, just want to, I can't help but teach people the truth. And I don't have it all down. I don't have it all together. I can only teach what I know. But I think I, I, can, I can teach what I know. And, I, and, and so I, I can't teach you what I don't know. But I can teach you what I do know. And I'm still learning this. I'm still processing all this. But my heart is similar to Paul's in this. Because I fear for all of us, including myself, that we are not beguiled the same way he was beguiled. And it's too trickery. Uh And I'm not saying every religious teacher out there is, in their minds, plotting to be trickery. They just are teaching what they know. And what they know might be wrong. I don't think it's always malicious. I don't think it's always spiteful. I have met some that way. Absolutely. I've had pastors come to me and say, Dave, I know what you're teaching is right, but I can't teach that. Because they They had a fear of man. They had a fear of their denomination. Not me. That just takes what they're doing. Now they know they're doing wrong. And to me, that takes it to another level. That's rebellion. That's not That's not because they're deceived. They're not deceived. They know they're doing wrong. And that takes it to another level. If the bridge is down, I want to warn the other cars to stop going so they won't go over the bridge. That makes sense? It, I, I mean, they might be mad at me that I'm blocking traffic and they, they want to get to the party or get home, but I don't want them to die. <laughs> There's a time to go home, but it doesn't have to be today. You know, and so I, I, I want to warn them, the bridge is down, don't go, you know, and, and, and so I want to, uh, hopefully I'm making sense, but I want to teach people the truth, uh, so that they grow up in place. How are we doing? Am I out of time? Yes, I'm over. So, Okay, so we'll finish it, we'll, we'll stop here, I it'll take a lot longer than I wanted to on some of this, and we'll recap a little bit, of, at least this section next week, to set, to set the pace for the rest of what I want to talk about. Making sense? Making sense? I know this is kind of deep, um, but it, I'm sharing a lot of different things. My heart is, as we're sharing it, I can connect the dots. Because to, to me, what I'm seeing, when I put this all together, I've seen the whole Bible teaching one main message. Yes, there are different attributes to it. Yes, there's different aspects of it. Uh, but there's one foundational message. And I had to it's, it's profound for me. It's changed. It's revolutionized my life. It, it's it a, a revolutionized my life spiritually, physically, financially, maritally, uh, vocationally. It's revolutionized my ministry. I mean, it was so much that I took all my previous notes and, and teachings and I threw them away. It was so revolutionary. I knew I was teaching the wrong message. And I think my mother was pure because I want to see life change. But my message is wrong. My how to do it. Was wrong, not the what. The what never really changed. It was how we do it that really changed. That makes sense. Because sometimes if uh, we work, we have the same heart of uh, not wanting people to sin and, and be healed and life transformed, but how we do it can be the difference between night and day, between it working and not working. And I've seen this work. I've seen this work, people getting healed. I've seen this work with people being set free from all kinds of addictions and lifestyles. I've seen this work in relationships and marriages. I've seen it work in every which way it works. It's the truth. In my heart, it's like Paul to come and perfect that which is lack, maybe lacking in our faith. Where we worship you, we exalt you, we magnify you. Lord, uh, you are the teacher. You are our ultimate teacher. In the point of the Christ. Teach us. Teach us. Lord, I know I'm conveying what you put on my heart. The Lord, I pray that you would teach us these things in a way that we understand it, in a way that we get it, so that we can experience the fruit of righteousness in everything that you have for us. And bless us as we go. Bless this week. And bless our day. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen. I bless you. Thanks for watching. There's online, And we'll see you tonight. Those who can be here. Now well, we'll see you next week or as soon as possible.